Well, good morning. How y'all been? You good? So uh, I we're just coming off of Easter, right? A few weeks ago, and um, uh, I wanted to recap some things that happened prior to our Easter services, where we saw seventeen hundred people about uh, be part of our worship uh, over the last over the five services, right? Five. Did I say that right, Steve? Right? Okay. I'm pretty sure it's five. I'll lose count after a while. And, uh, but so some of the things we did beforehand, if you remember, we were doing, uh, we did some door hangers. We had 2,500 door hangers that asked the question, uh, uh, why does Easter matter? And, uh, thank you for those of you who passed those out. You know what was nice about that is we planned that Sunday and it turned out to be the, the, the nicest Sunday in March. I mean, it was like 55 degrees. Uh, we enjoyed it being outside. It was really fun. So thank you for those of you who were part of that. We also, uh, some of you may not know, we, uh, the Voorhees Sun and the Sun paper around South Jersey has an opportunity to put a little sticker. Uh, they do provide the sticker for us. They put the sticker on the paper and we promoted, uh, our Easter services in Voorhees and Mount Laurel. And so 40,000 homes received, received that sticker. And then we also, uh, promoted our services on Facebook and we had about 5,000 or more people see our see our service times. Share all that with you because I received an email from somebody, a person and and their family who visited our Mount Laurel campus on Easter Sunday, and uh, I found out that they found us on Facebook, so our Facebook promotion. And uh, this person wrote, I've been struggling in my present church, finding myself not listening to the sermon. (laughs) And then a parenthesis, it's a good time to catch up on calendaring and the grocery lists. I pray that is not the case here. And then goes on to say, and concerned at my disconnect from God and my church family, I was intrigued to find out why Easter matters, and now I know. And that was exciting. And then the email goes on to talk about some other things in her life. And then another person on Facebook a few months ago uh, was invited to the Mount Laurel campus, and they wrote, I can't find a place where I connect where the things that are said on Sunday morning make sense to my life. And so I want to say thank you for, for all of the work that you have done in door hangers and, and providing resources so that we can promote campuses, because there are men and women who are wondering, and we're wondering, why does Easter matter? And, and I pray that, that we helped resolve that question, or at least began the process of resolving that in people's lives. So I want to, uh, that's going to come back in a few minutes, but let me share with you some background on this morning's scripture. Uh, it's from the book of Acts, and uh, it may cause some skepticism or doubt, because it is a story about a miracle. And so something, and a miracle by definition, is something outside of the natural order, and it's not fully explained, and that, that's kind of how it works. So the book of Acts is written by Luke. He's also the author of the Gospel of Luke, and so Luke tells the story of the birth of Jesus, but he also tells the story of the birth of the church in Acts. And so Luke, when writing about the events that we're about to read, he makes it very clear that the people who were present witnessing this event, they can't fully explain it either. And throughout the story, we're going to read words that words like bewildered, amazed, and perplexed. 
One commentator said this about this story. We may never know precisely what happened on the day of Pentecost, but we do know that it was one of the supremely great days of the Christian church. For on that day, the Holy Spirit came to the church in a very special way. And so we're going to read a story from Acts chapter 2. It's going to be up on the screen. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and uh, we'll be reading along, and I'll stop and take a break and uh, share some thoughts and background and things like that on the story. And then at the end, we'll kind of wrap this all up. So up on the screen, the story begins in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. So gathered together, Paul's here, gathered together are the apostles and about 100 other believers. It's been about 10 days since Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1. It's the day of Pentecost, which is also a Jewish festival called the Feast of Weeks. Uh, in Greek, that Feast of Weeks is translated Pentecost, and it means the 50th, okay? It's the 50th day after Passover. So the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, marked the wheat harvest. So it's the Feast of Weeks, and then it's the wheat harvest. Two different words there, right? So it's the, it marks the wheat harvest, and it also commemorates the day that God gave the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. So Pentecost is a harvest festival. It's a day where people gathered at the temple from all the towns in Israel, and they would, they would celebrate the bringing in of the crops. Now, uh, a little landscape information would be helpful here as well. Israel is a semi-arid region. In other words, it's almost a desert in most places. And in some parts, it moves past the almost, and it is a desert. So there are two short rainy seasons that keep the whole land from being a desert. So in a place like that, where the rain and the harvest seasons are tremendously important and also very tenuous, if the rains didn't come, the entire population could be in serious trouble. So this is an incredibly important holiday where people would gather together to thank God for the harvest. And so because it's Pentecost and because it's been celebrated this Feast of Weeks for centuries, Jewish men and women from all over were gathering at Herod's temple in Jerusalem. And they were not only Jews from within Israel, but from all the other places in Egypt and Asia Minor. Now, we live in a high-tech society. The closest we get to this understanding of what's happening with this Feast of Weeks and this celebration of the harvest is if we go to our backyard gardens, right? Or maybe to a farm stand. And we leave the worrying about the crops to somebody else. But in first century farming culture, a feast celebrating the gathering of crops would be an important part of custom and culture. So on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And then Luke goes on, it's up on the screen. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting, the 100. Then... What looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So there was the sound of a gale force wind inside the house, not wind blowing outside. There's The wind is blowing in, the sound of the wind is inside the house. There were flames. 
things that look like fire settling on top of people and everyone present, all 100 followers of Jesus, began speaking in other languages. This is a full sensory experience. And it's so loud we're going to see that people came running to see what was going on. So up on the screen. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. Now, the word living there actually is better translated visiting. These are the devout Jews who are here to celebrate for the festival, okay? The festival of weeks. When they heard the loud noise, they hear the noise that is going on in the room where the hundred are gathered. Everyone came running and they were, and Luke says, they were bewildered. They were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. Now, in this culture, we don't understand multilingual culture very well. Greek was the worldwide language of the day, so most everyone spoke Greek as the first language. It was a language you would use in every town that was controlled uh, uh, in that area. Uh, by, 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 the, by the, the, the Greek culture, but you would also have your local language as well. Now, not all Jews spoke Hebrew fluently, and while Aramaic was more common, Jews from other places were sometimes weak on the Aramaic as well. So you would often speak two and three different languages, Greek being the common language everyone understood. You were, uh, if you were Jewish, you would have your Jewish language that you would speak, but you would also have your cultural village language as well. So if you were from media, you spoke a form of Persian, even if you were a Jew. So there's a mighty wind inside the house. There are flames, and these flames are settling on top of those who are present inside the house with gale force wind sounds inside the house. And it was loud, loud enough that people came running to see what was going on. And there are language being spoken so that people heard their native language. And then Luke goes on, it's on the screen, and they were completely amazed. <laughs> you bet they were. They were completely amazed. And what did they say? They exclaimed, how can this be? These people are all from Galilee, the 100 in the room who are speaking these languages. And yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. See, here we are, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, and Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and the province of Asia, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and even the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. And Luke says they were completely amazed. But I want us to pause here and notice what they're amazed at. They came because they heard gale force wind sounding winds inside a house. There were flames falling on people's heads. And they came and they were amazed at what? The languages. Nobody's surprised by the wind. Hello? This is before sound systems, right? No one's surprised. They're surprised by the languages. 
Again, because this is a Jewish festival, Jews from all over the area, an international crowd is gathered to speak in a foreign language at this moment was not necessary. What language do they all speak as a common language? Greek. That's the language they would be using for commerce. That would be the language they would use in town because all these different towns are gathering together, all their different dialects, but yet they would all choose to speak Greek so they could communicate with each other. And so this crowd is made up of Jews and converts to Judaism. And so Greek being the worldwide language of the day, it would have been sufficient. For a crowd like this, at least two languages would have been necessary. Greek and Aramaic for the Jewish so the, since they're Jewish. See, we don't live in a multilingual world in the U.S. This is maybe difficult for us to grasp. But for the first time in their lives, these men and women were hearing a word from God in a way that struck straight home to their hearts and that they could understand. And so the power of the Holy Spirit was such that it was given these to these simple disciples, these 100 followers, a message that would reach right into every person's heart. And so I thought, I should write in the side of my Bible, in my margin, the birth of the church begins with accessibility. Accessibility. See, in the first century, first century, accessibility was connected to language. Greek would be the language they'd all speak, but yet if you wanted to speak intimately and to know me, you would speak the language of my dialect. In the 21st century, accessibility looks a little bit different. It's learning to speak another language. It's putting out door hangers and asking the question, why does Easter matter? It's realizing that there are people on Sunday morning who are trying to decide if their grocery list is more important than what's happening in worship and have decided it is. It's about people in the 21st century saying, I hear a sermon on Sunday morning, but how does that apply to me on Monday? And so I started thinking, and I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to hijack a word. Don't look it up in the dictionary. It doesn't fit for this. But it fits for the next 15 minutes. So I was looking up, trying to figure out how to make this uh, uh, this argument, this, this idea, and I came up with... Uh, I was Google searching, of course, and the importance of the word is, uh, the word is fluency. Now, fluency is a word, all right, but I found on the education website, I found the definition of fluency. Fluency is the ability to read with accuracy, proper speed, and meaningful expression. And so all you educators out there are going to nod your head and say, yes, that's what fluency is. And then the definition goes on to say the fluency is also a significant indicator of reading comprehension. So when children can read fluently, it means that instead of using brain power for decoding the letters and the words, they can turn their attention to the meaning of the text, right? 
That makes sense. We get that, that we can read a sentence and not have to, we remember our children were doing that. They were reading the words. And I remember my son painfully was reading those, those books. He's, he's graduating from college in a, in a few weeks, but I remember reading those books where he would go, shh, e, And it was like, he was like giving birth to these words. You know, it was like, Eads, she reads, she reads, she reads. I'm like, oh, it was so painful. Now he's graduating with honors, all right? He did it. He adopted and, and, and he was able to become fluent, right? All right, so fluency is reading comprehension, right? Learning the meaning of the text. It gets even better, though. When students reach higher levels of fluency, they're able to tap into metacognitive strategies. This means they can visualize, question, and interpret what they're reading, and they can think about their own feelings and opinions while reading a text. This is the highest level of reading comprehension. And so the words that stood out to me as I was thinking about fluency and the idea of accessibility and that how can we as a church and as a community and as men and women of faith have fluency in our culture, I heard the words comprehension and meaning and personal feelings and opinions. And so I wondered if in Acts chapter 2, God through the Holy Spirit is making it crystal clear that fluency is an important part of the church. The importance of communication. They began speaking in a different way than ever before. The importance of context. They brought common experience and connection about comprehension and meaning and the heart. It's fluency. And then I thought of when we go on our mission trip every year, we go on a mission trip to Haiti and we were there last March and, and it happens to me every year is I so long for fluency. I don't speak Creole, and I don't speak French, and the Haitians have a have a multi-languaged uh, uh, culture, and so they will they will they will learn Creole as their as their uh, dialect or their language, but they'll also formally learn French in school, and so most Haitians will speak Creole and French, and a very few will speak English in just a few words. And so I always labor and struggle. How do I communicate how I'm feeling to the men and women that we meet? And all I can do is smile. Nod. It's rudimentary, right? It's, um, it's frustrating, incredibly frustrating that we meet children who are already hesitant and already questioning why are these people here and to be able to communicate without language. I feel like we're so inaccessible. And so I long for fluency. How can I make this connection? So Peter and the other believers have become filled with the Holy Spirit and they're able to create community because of their fluency, because they become accessible. The Holy Spirit is working in people's lives, bringing people together, and the birth of the church was about establishing and encouraging this community, and something similar is, we try to do something very similar here today. 
we do our best to do that, right? Fluency and context and community. We want people who are new to faith and people who are old in their faith and people who have no, that faith is not even part of their language, that we can gather together in community and we, we try to speak with fluency. We don't use religious jargon and we, uh, I wear sneakers on the platform, you know, like some churches would not be happy with my foot, uh, shoe wear choice. We explain words or ideas others may not understand. We seek to understand each other. And so in Acts chapter 2, it concludes this way. It's up on the screen. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But there were others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk. That's all. So Luke records the birth and early years of the church, and it's mind-boggling. It's, he uses words like amazing and perplexing, and he confesses that some didn't believe it, even though they were there to witness it. They saw it and didn't believe it, and they blamed it on drunkenness. And if you struggle to believe this story, there were men and women who were present there who struggled as well. And that's the nature of miracles. And another thing I thought about as I was reading this story, that there are some Christians who read about supernatural events like what we just read, and they hear about the foreign languages that are spoken at Pentecost, and they begin to wonder, why doesn't God still do miracles like that today? I mean, that's that would change the church if that happened today. Imagine if... We just began to make these intimate connections with people and that we understood where they were at and what they were doing and how we could communicate with them the most effectively possible. And if there was this roaring sound of wind blowing through this building, that would be pretty impressive. What if people came running to the church building because they heard the noise that was going on inside and that noise was otherworldly? The worry here is that when we are looking for signs and wonders, we've forgotten about the miracles right in front of us. So when a man or a woman is genuinely transformed into a caring and gentle soul, is that any less wonderful than hearing languages spoken? Is that any less miraculous than gale force winds inside of a room with a hundred people gathered? And so I was reminded of a gentleman who some of you may know from uh, years ago. His name was Bob. And uh, I met Bob the first year I was here. I was the youth pastor my first year here. It was uh, almost 13 years ago. And Bob was in his 70s at the time, and Bob was a volunteer youth leader. And I was concerned we were going to break Bob because he was in his, he was in his mid-70s when he volunteered to be a youth leader. And... Bob had a Bob had a personality about him that could be gruff and rough and a, almost offensive in some ways if you didn't know him really well. And Bob came up to me in the first few months, and we were going on our first mission trip that I was going to lead 13 years ago. And Bob's Bob was the first volunteer to sign up to go on the mission trip. And I thought there's no way this 70-something man can go with us on a mission trip. 
And there's no way the students who are going to go are going to want to be with this guy. And so Bob showed up, and Bob served, and Bob had a small group of students, and Bob became the hit. Students thought he was the coolest thing ever, that he went on a 20-hour bus ride to Biloxi, Mississippi with us. And he uh, was an electrician by trade uh, when he retired uh, decades earlier, but he got to do some electrical wiring with students, and, and he couldn't bend over because his knees, he had artificial knees, and he had artificial other things, and, and, and he couldn't bend over and do whatever it is he needed to do, so he'd sit in a chair and direct everybody. But here's what I was unaware of, is that God had to begun to change Bob's heart and life soon before I had gotten here. And it was an outstanding, miraculous experience. I only saw a 70-something-year-old man with some artificial joints. And I thought, there's no way God can use that. But yet God was looking inside at what he was doing in Bob's life and in Bob's heart. And Bob began dramatically to change. He went on multiple trips. I don't know how many. It was six, seven, eight trips afterward. Six, seven, eight years. Well into his 80s. He also decided at one point he was going to go to seminary. He went to seminary and he came into my office and I said, and he wanted me to fill out his reference form for going to seminary. I said, Bob, why are you doing that? And he said, I just want to learn more about Jesus. <laughs> you already tell him no. <laughs> and so Bob would drive to Philadelphia two or three times a week. He'd go to seminary. He graduated from seminary. All the while learning more and more about Jesus. And we got to watch his life begin to change more and more and more becoming like Jesus. He graduated from seminary and he said, I want to become a pastor. He's in his 80s. And so I helped him go through that. He became, I didn't know this, he did this, he did this without telling me. Not, he was allowed to, he's in his 80s, he can do whatever he wants, right? But, but he, uh, when Virtue of Voorhees opened, he became their chaplain. He just went and did it. He went in and he, <laughs> he was the official Methodist chaplain of Virtue of Voorhees. He wasn't a Methodist pastor. <laughs> but somehow he did that. We found out afterward he was their official Methodist pastor. Good for him. I, I don't know how he did it. See, God was changing and working in Bob's life. What's more impressive? The sound of a mighty wind coming upon a group of praying Christians once or a self-centered man changed into a compassionate servant who devotes the remaining years of his life to helping others. I would argue every day that that is. And so the next thing Peter did after all of this is to says that he preached and those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Dramatic, 
life-changing birth of the church. And how was that possible? It was the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is present, there's fluency and community present. And when someone is willing to tell their story to someone else, the Holy Spirit works. And when true community and true understanding are present, God can work miracles in people's lives. Now, the assumption we need to not make is if things are going well, if we have money and career and good neighbors and good marriage, why would we need Jesus? This is such dangerous thinking. There are men and women, people we work with, who live in our neighborhoods, who are in our families, and their life could be so much better. A supernatural experience is possible. An intensely personal, life-altering experience is possible. Because of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, and I'm getting amped up, sorry, like Peter, we could share our experience with someone else, and they could have an experience that is life-changing. And so here's the two things I want us to remember today. The single greatest gift that we can give to another person is an introduction to the God who created them. It's almost unexplainable. It's amazing, it's perplexing, and it is bewildering. For some, it can be a dramatic life change. Someone who was self-centered and only out for themselves becomes someone who's giving and serving and just wants to know Jesus better. That is the best gift we can give to anyone. More so than finding a great community and a great church that we can be a part of, but that they would know the God of the universe who loves them like no one else. And secondly, Don't downplay the significance of God changing human lives. Someone's life being changed is miraculous. And when the Holy Spirit is intimately connected to my heart, and I am part of a community that brings fluency to the people around me, speaking their language, God will perform miracles. And the Holy Spirit living inside you and me can bring dramatic life change to someone else's life. And so this is an idea, and I I can't remember who told me this, if it was a pastor who told it to me, if it was a seminary professor, or I read it somewhere, but I have thought about it and used it often in my time, and I want you to stand with me for closing prayers. I share it with you. So in Genesis, it says that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And so in the Old Testament, God was walking in relationship with Adam and Eve. And that's that's pretty close. And then in the Gospels, it says that Jesus, with his disciples, spent three years in ministry. And so Jesus was right there with his disciples, he's, he's God in the flesh. Like people could touch him and people could see him and people could talk to him and people could, could, could hear the things that he was saying. And that's, that's really close. But the God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament just wasn't close enough for God. And so then we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit chooses to live within us. And I remember this person said, and finally that was close enough. And so men and women, we have this opportunity. 
because the Holy Spirit's inside of us, because we have the, the power, that the same power in, that's in Acts chapter 2, to connect, to influence, and to change the world around us. Whether it's the people in our workplaces, whether it's the people in our family, the people we see at school. And that we can speak into their lives so that there will be a dramatic, miraculous life change takes place. I pray that you would take that challenge with you tomorrow at work and at school and the places that you go. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day.